Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stokes. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tony Spackenthal. This is Andrew Blahoff. This is Graham Corn. This is Brian Curl. This is Jason Ackermanis. This is Chris McDermott. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Gentlemen, great to see you. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Amato's Fifth Quarter and the 21st season already. It's here, episode number 21. I'm here delivering you this podcast and let me tell you, I'm so happy to be here and just to deliver you guys some some content and interviews with high profile sports people has been so much fun. I love chatting to these guys and and listening to their stories um, about their careers and, and their life. It's been fantastic and I really hope you do uh, enjoy what this podcast has to offer. And again, thank you so much to everybody who has helped spread the word and shared the the, the podcast and shared the socials. It, it means the world to me. As much people who know about Amato's Fifth Quarter and who listen to Amato's Fifth Quarter as possible obviously helps boost the visibility of the podcast and allows me the opportunity to get even more guests on the show. And that's definitely what I'm trying to achieve here. Tonight for episode 21, my guest is an SANFL legend and the inaugural Adelaide Crows captain. It's Chris McDermott who's coming on the show tonight. Now, Bone 
has a remarkable story because at a young age, he lost both of his parents and had to grow up very quickly with his siblings and to to rely on one another to get by. And, and they, you know, were able to, to do that. And listening to him go into to that was, was really inspirational because I would gather that when you lose both your parents at a young age, it, it builds incredible fortitude and, you know, your life could either go this way or that way because you don't necessarily have that sort of sort of guidance in, in your life directly anyway. I mean, it'd be tough for any kid to lose their both their parents at such a young age and, and still go on to, to be successful in his own right. We go into that. We also talk about, of course, his football career and what he achieved in his career playing in the SNFL with the Glenelg Tigers where he established himself as one of the best players in the state. And then, of course, we talk about the Adelaide Crows days, the sort of the first few seasons there where he was the inaugural captain of the club. His sort of not necessarily messy departure, but his sad departure at the club, finishing up at North Adelaide and and coaching North Adelaide as well. We talk about the 1985 and 1986 premierships with the Glenelg Football Club. We talk about the 1993 preliminary final where I've had a couple of guests who were also involved in that game, Dustin Fletcher and Graham Corn. So we talk about that. And he does go into that very famous story of the farting incident at halftime of that game and does reveal a little bit of information about that, which was funny and, and interesting. The Robert Shaw era in, in 1995 and 96. And, and then, of course, when Malcolm Blight came in at the end of 1996 and got rid of four players at the club, one of them was Chris McDermott sort of how that impacted him, how he felt about it. Of course, the two years after when the Adelaide Crows won back-to-back premierships in 97, 98, you know, that that was all really, really interesting. Bone is just a lovely guy to talk to. Fascinating story. So, I'm, so I definitely think this is going to be an episode that everyone's going to enjoy. So throughout his time in football from 1981 to 1997, he played a total of 354 games, uh, 227 of them for Glenelg, 117 of them for the Adelaide Crows, and 10 for North Adelaide. He uh, kicked 179 goals. He is a three-time All-Australian in 1986, 1987, and 1992. He is a three-time Glenelg Best and Ferris in 1986, 1987, and 1988. He is a one-time Adelaide Crows Best and Ferris in 1992. He was the Glenelg captain for three seasons, 1998 to 1990. He is, of course, the first ever Adelaide Crows captain from 1991 to 1994. He is a part of the Adelaide Crows team of the decade. He is in the South Australian Football Hall of Fame, the Glenelg Hall of Fame. He's an Adelaide Crows life member and in the Adelaide Crows Hall of Fame as well. And he also represented South Australia in the State of Origin series and was the Foss Williams medalist in 1987. So the list goes on. He was one of the best players South Australia's ever produced and is just a natural-born leader. So from the Adelaide Crows, it's the inaugural captain of the club, Chris McDermott, about to come to the ground. The Blues have got a case of the Blues. Here's the reason why. Here we go, here we go, Henry Crows. Here we go, Henry Crows, here we go. Harry kicked towards centre half forward, McDermott marks. Has an open paddock to run in steady, he's towards goal. Now McDermott for goal, he kicks it. Here's a great chance for the base. Right. Here we go, here we go, Henry Crow. Henry Crow. 
back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today we've got a massive guest. It's the inaugural captain of the Adelaide Football Club. We've got Chris McDermott. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Dan, it's a pleasure, mate. Anytime. Chris, it's been, what, 24, 25 years since you, you left the Adelaide Football Club in 96, and it's been 21 years since your last stint at North Adelaide. Of course, have set up your charity with, with Tony McGuinness at the time, which is now was the McGuinness McDermott Foundation. It's now the Little Heroes Foundation. But could you give the listeners a bit of an update on the last sort of 20 years of, of your life and, and where your life is at at the moment? Crikey, you make me sound old, that's for sure. <laughs> um, oh, look, you know, a lot of things have changed. I mean, footy, I guess, uh, since I finished at North Adelaide, I, I did some commentary for, for 10 or so years, um, a little bit on TV, a little, a little bit on radio, wrote the paper for a while, but, you know, life changes, so I'm a, a father now, uh, got 15-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, um, so they occupy the majority of, of, of time these days, um, so I guess the Time spent in footy now developed and, and moved into into family and making sure that they're in the bo- as best possible shape for their for their futures. Um, so you know, I still I still watch a little bit occasionally, but um, you know, life changed a fair bit. And I guess the charity that you spoke about, um, now Little Heroes Foundation, celebrates its 25th year in a couple of days' time. So May the 30th, we turn 25, and I guess uh, any other time is pretty well occupied with the charity in raising funds. We have historically supported, um, I guess, seriously ill kids, started in the cancer sector and then moved into more serious illness. But we've just um, developed a partnership with an organisation called Breakthrough Mental Health Research Foundation. And given the uh, challenges that the world has faced over the last 18 months, mental health became a real issue for quite a range of people of all ages. And that's where this majority of our focus is for the, I guess, the foreseeable future, at least the next three years anyway. Absolutely, and and congratulations on the Big 25 as well. You are originally, well, you're born and bred here in Adelaide, originally from Brighton, is that is that correct? Born and bred in Merino, so uh, just a little bit, a couple of suburbs down from Brighton, went to Brighton High School uh, as, a, as a youngster and obviously in the Glenelg zone, so I played all my sort of junior footy and that at, uh, at Glenelg, but... Um, yeah, lived down there and lived in that same house for sort of 35, 36 years before I um, met my wife and she dragged me to the other side of town. So uh, very much a, a, a lad from the southern suburbs. And you didn't have sort of the easiest childhood growing up. Um, you sadly lost your parents at quite an early age. You lost your mother to, to breast cancer and then lost your father, I believe, 18 months later. If you're okay to talk about it, what kind of a, an impact does that make on a young boy to lose both your parents at such a young age? And, and what are your memories of your parents? Uh, yeah, no, my memories are good um, and, and very strong. So I have a, an older brother, a younger sister. So my brother's a couple of years older, sister a couple of years younger. Um, and so, uh, look, you know, my mother was, was unwell for quite a, quite a few years. Sort of almost, you know, from my age of ten, so sort of four or five years before she she passed away. My dad was a bit quicker, and his was probably a, a twelve month illness. Sort of from not much after my mother died, my father got crook, and so that was relatively quick. Uh, we stayed and lived in the family home. My brother joined the police force not long after, and 
my sister left school at 14 and a half and became a hairdresser and um, was sort of doing some work for a local hairdresser and ended up buying the, the salon there and, and being in that sort of industry for 30 odd years. So um, certainly some challenges, um, sort of being three kids, 17 and under, uh, with our parents, but we had a great network of friends and relatives um, that, I guess, kept an eye on us. And, you know, in the end, you do what you do. Um, you, you find ways to survive, evolve, and, and do the best you can. And, um, you know, it's 40 years later now, um, you know, the, the outcomes for all three of us have been pretty good. My brother married and got a couple of kids. My sister married and got three kids. And, um, you know, I've got a couple. So uh, it's, it's all turned out all right. They were challenging times, but, you know, they make you stronger, make you wiser, make you more resilient. And I guess we've all looked back on those days and while they were challenging and difficult, um, you know, you survive uh, as best you can. And um, hopefully we've made, you know, some decent lives for our, for our kids. Yeah, because, I mean, I was going to ask you, um, you know, did you and your siblings still live at home? Did, did you have someone sort of come and look after you or were you sort of on your own? And, and does that, when you lose your parents at a young age, I, I would gather that would make you a, a stronger person, you know, now looking back at that time. Look, we, we had people to um, that we rely on. We had family, but most of our family were either from Port, uh, in the Port Adelaide area or out Norwood way, so not really close by. Obviously, I was really good um, friends with the Kernahan family. They were... You know, 10, 15 minutes away, so relatively close, and Steve and I were at school together, so, uh, you know, they would keep an eye out on us, so, you know, we were really well looked after in that regard. Sure, there were challenges, you know, living on your own, but, um, you know, you just, you, f- you find ways to get through, and I must admit, we're, the three of us, um, you know, the, the years leading up to it had been extremely challenging, and, you know, for those that can remember back in those days, you know, you know we're talking the, you know, the, the 70s and early 80s, well, you know, late 70s really, um, you know, the world was a different place, cancer treatments were a lot different, it was a lot more brutal and, um, and a lot rawer in those days uh, than they are now and it's a large reason why uh, McGuinness McDermott Foundation evolved and became so easy to move into because that relationship I guess I had with cancer and the understanding I had um, I guess developed an empathy for those other families going through it um, so look we got through and you know it's it, there are a lot of positives to take out of that negative time from back then that um, I guess has made us all the people we are today yeah what a story yeah, it's, a, it's a story but you know what it, there's a lot of a lot of people in a really similar boat so we're not unique by any nature and I think you know because you play sport you're, you know you have a time in the media or, uh, and in the limelight I guess your situation is uh, heightened a little because a lot of people know about it but there are so many people in similar situations far worse situations than we were so you know I guess we've always understood that and respected that and you know that know that there are a lot of people that have done it a lot tougher and deserve as much support as we got 
So with with this story, where did football come into it? I mean, I know your grandfather was a legend in the SANFL for Port Adelaide in the team yep. of the century and, and he even had a short stint at the Western Bulldogs who back then were still obviously Footscray. But w- where did football come into this story? Uh, I was a, a footy tragic from you know, my earliest memory. I, you know, 1969, I remember being in a Woodville jumper going to uh, games at Woodville Oval watching. I just, I worshipped the Woodville Football Club. My grandfather that we spoke about who... Uh, when he finished playing, stayed at Port Adelaide. Then he moved to Woodville and helped Woodville get from where they were into the SANFL, which happened in 1964, a year after I was sort of born, or the year, yeah, a couple of months after I was born. So he would take me to the footy. I, I was in the change rooms uh, before the game. I remember watching you know, Malcolm Blight play and Ray Huff and Buff all the legends of the Woodville Football Club. And all I ever wanted to do was play footy for Woodville. Um, Parents moved to Glenelg, and so I started playing in junior grades at Glenelg as a nine-year-old. So Stephen Coonahan and I played under 10s at Glenelg, then 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s, 17s, 19s, reserves, and, and leagues. So that junior system um, at SANFL clubs through that time was really, really strong. So very lucky. I had legends of the Glenelg Footy Club like Rex Voigt, coached me for years down there and um, really got a really good uh, up uh, uh, sort of grounding in footy. They knew all the basics and tactics and my dad was a, a footy nut as well. So just, I lived in a football environment. So, you know, it was sort of a natural progression for me. I had a footy in my hand in the winter, a cricket bat in, the hand, in my hand in the summer and life just sort of evolved. It always seemed, I don't know, it's destiny, but... It was just a world I lived in, a world I loved and worshipped, and it's all I ever wanted to do was, was play footy at some stage. Never wanted to play AFL footy, never wanted to play VFL footy, just wanted to play SNFL footy for Glenelg um, and was able to do so. So when you were recruited by Glenelg, uh, you made your yep. SNFL debut in 1981. And your Correct. first your first two seasons in the competition, you were in lose, played in losing grand finals. So eighty one was to Port Adelaide, and then eighty two to Norwood. What are your memories of those two games? And you, can can you explain the feeling of losing a grand final, putting your blood, sweat, and tears into a season? And also, what do you think some of the reasons were that you, you couldn't win, you know, one or both of those games? Goodell have got six, six eight, Port Adelaide. Well, I think, you know, 81, 82, Glenelg were a, you know, they had great players from the 70s. Peter Carey was there, Paul West and Graham Corns was still playing. Um, so there was a lot of players that had been through the 70s with Glenelg, rolled into the 80s, and if you can remember Glenelg during the 70s, uh, they obviously won the Premiership in 73, but lost, I think, 74, 75, 77. So there was that history that Glenelg could make grand finals and not win them. We lost in 81, 
and were beaten by Port Adelaide, who were just too good, too strong, had Russell Ebert uh, as a veteran playing, but playing super, had great leadership, really strong credit, superbly coached, and were just a better team than we were. In 80, uh, 82, we met Norwood, and we just blitzed, just had a really bad day, uh, grand final day. Again, no excuses, beaten by a better team, but just certainly didn't produce our best. Um, and, you know, my memories are pretty vague, or, you know, from, from those days, but certainly as a footy club and as a group of players, we learned. And over 83 and 84, the next two years after those two grand final losses, the Glenelg Footy Club changed enormously and just said this wasn't acceptable anymore. Changed their model of recruiting and recruited really tough, resilient players. Scott Salisbury, one who went on to play 250 games for Glenelg, captain the club, played state footy and was as tough as they come. Chris Duthie from Broken Hill, who played during the two grand, uh, the two premiership years in 85, 86, tough as they come, went to play in uh, the VFL for a while um, at fullback, just never beaten. The two stringer boys came, Alan and Wayne, super tough. Wayne Henwood came, super tough. So there was a team coming that no longer would the football club recruit just good players. They had to be tough. And um, they certainly did that. And, um, you know, that was a lot of the reason why we were so successful in the in the coming years. Now, we still lost some grand finals. You know, after winning 85 and 86, we lost 87, 88, 90. Um, but there was certainly a backbone put in the footy club in 83 and 84 under Graham Campbell's coaching in those times that certainly paid off for a couple of years anyway uh, later on. So do you think the, this recruiting and, and the change within the club was the impetus in uh, winning the premiership in 85 and 86? This time, obviously, you're on the winning side of things under Graham Corns. Um, you also had Stephen Kernahan still there in 85, wasn't there in 86. But what's the feeling like when you know you're scripted in SANFL history forever as a premiership player? Now McGinnis, the game running very late. The siren is gone. The Bays have won back-to-back premierships for the first time. Oh, look, it, it was fantastic to be part of it. You know, we often, well, we get together. There was a group of seven of us. Uh, Ackland Earl, you know, Peter Maynard was there, Chris Duthie, Tony McGuinness, Tony Simons, Gavin Walsh, uh, and, you know, Kern as myself, that sort of all similar ages, all came through together. And so to be able to do that, lose grand finals, win some, play some. A really good culture. There was just a great group of players at that time. And Glenelg Footy Club um, had some really good times on the field. They had some really good times off the field. We socialised a lot together. There was a really good community um, that, you know, still plays out today. You know, 35 years later, we're all still good friends, we don't catch up as much as we used to but a lot of them still get together, go away together and, you know, uh, godparents to others' kids so it was just 
a great time to be in that community, in that part of the world, and uh, part of the world involved with that footy club. So, um, footy played a role, but I think a lot of the great memories and successes and that are the evolution of the relationships and personal relationships and friendships that have gone on and as to past footy and gone on after football. So, for me, that's the beauty of it all is that, you know, footy's gone, footy's finished, we've moved on, but, um, you know, we still catch up at, at times. I think it's the footy club's 100th birthday this year. Um, so, you know, there's more catching up to do, more conversations to have, more lies to be told, more beers to be drunk, <laughs> and um, the story goes on. So, yeah, in the end, that's the success, I think, of the Glenelg Footy Club that for a period, you've got a lot of people together that have gone on in different forms and different stories and different businesses in different parts of the world but get together every now and then and relive those old memories. So it's touched a lot of people's lives, that football club. Yeah, beautifully said. And is it true that you were actually drafted during the 80s to Fitzroy in Brisbane and also received a bit of interest from Carlton? Is that is that true? <laughs> yes. So uh, I think, you know, my memory again uh, is a little challenged, but early 80s I got uh, in the initial draft or very early draft years, I think it was 82, I got drafted to Fitzroy. Um, nothing ever happened there. When Kerner's moved to, uh, well, before he moved to Carlton, there was a bit of very loose interest, but not really. And then 86, I was drafted to Brisbane um, and was interested. You know, Shane O'Sullivan, who I'd known at Carlton, uh, had gone to Brisbane as their recruiting manager, so I had a good relationship with him from the times that he was negotiating with Kerners to go to Carlton. Um, met the coach, uh, met Paul Cronin, came to my house, and he was the president of that stage. So I was really interested for a brief time uh, about going to Brisbane, but they just couldn't get their act together and... Um, this was at the end of 86, there was just, you know, a month went by and there was delays. And at that stage, Glenelg started talking and uh, in the end, it was an easy decision to stay and not go. And so that was pretty well the last time I ever seriously considered going to the AFL slash VFL and was pretty well resigned to stay and happy to stay at Glenelg for the rest of my career until the Crows sort of started to make some noise at the end of 1990 that they were going to join the competition and the world and the football world for me changed a little bit sort of the end of 1990 but um, it was an interesting time but never really interested in going to the BFL until the Crows joined in 91. So when you mentioned that you were uh, recruited by Fitzroy but nothing happened yep. what, what what do you mean by that? Well they just uh, so they threw me a footy jumper said, uh, yep, you're on the list, uh, we're going to talk to you. And uh, they flew me over. Uh, Robert Walls was coach then, so I remember going to his house and having a conversation with him, but it just never evolved. And, you know, I think that was 82. I didn't have a very good year in 1983 or 1984, and their interest waned pretty quickly. So I, I honestly never spoke to them again. Um and that's just how it was back then. Recruiting was far different than it is 35 years later. And, um, 
Yeah, the phone never rang from Fitzroy again, so um, they may have wasted a draft pick, but a lot of a draft picks got wasted back in the early 80s, that's for sure. Right, so you were never actually a listed Fitzroy player. There was just no, yeah, it never. was just interest, but it just never eventuated. Interest and uh, sort of drafted to them, but that's where it finished. Right, okay. And was the same with Brisbane, really. Drafted okay. to them. Uh, I was picked two in nineteen eighty six, um, but never signed anything, and it never went anywhere else from there. Right. Because as, as we've mentioned, continued to play for, for Glenelg and you were, had established yourself as one of the best players in South Australia. You captained the club and you had those losing grand finals. But I in particular want to talk about 1990. So yep. it's well documented. I've had Graham Corns on the show and he spoke about it as well. Port Adelaide made the approach to enter the competition in 1990. I mean, the Crows basically came in as an afterthought and just took it away from them. Um, and yep. that's pretty much where the rivalry started, I suppose. What was your view of that, and how did it all come about with the Adelaide Crows in, in October of 1990? Uh, well, my view of it, I mean, obviously, we played Port in the grand final, so after the, the loss, we go into their change rooms, Graham Corns and myself as coaching captain, to speak to them, congratulate them. Well, I congratulated them, because uh, Graham said, you better go first, because they're not going to like what I say. <laughs> I went first and congratulated them, uh, and then Graham went second, and we had to get out of there pretty quickly because he didn't congratulate them. He just ripped them to shreds about what he referred to as a betrayal of SA South Australian football. Um, Ironically, things would change and morph pretty quickly, and the Crows would come in and Graham would coach them. So, you know, it's sort of funny how things in life changes but it was a really tumultuous time in uh, in football across the, the country but certainly here in South Australia I remember running into Bruce Lindsay in a fish and chip shop at um, at Seacliff uh, just purely by chance we looked at each other and said what do you think what do you know what's going on have you heard anything and so you know as footballers we didn't know anything for a while we ended up Glenelg uh, going to New York and Las Vegas. We had a footy trip at the end of the year, so we've shot through and gone overseas uh, as all this was sort of happening. Got back and you know, the world the world was moving pretty fast at those days. So it was a really confusing time. As a player, there was still doubt. Even when the Crows formed, I know there was a bit of doubt as to whether you wanted to join, you should join, that you would be asked to join. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty for a period of time, um, so not not a great time in football uh, until I guess you made a decision, you got an approach. And I remember I was working at Rowan Jarman Sports Store on Grenfell Street in uh, in the city, and you know a couple of uh, like curls and a couple of them came in to see me and said, "Look, this is what's happening. We want you to be part of it. Um, you know, what do you think?" So. Um, it moved pretty quickly. Uh, there was chaos. Uh, there was a lot of conversations and blokes who you were football enemies with uh, for the previous 12 months, two years, five years, ten years, all of a sudden became confidants and teammates and partners and good friends and see the world change. So, you know, you had a lot of excitement 
eventually about joining the Adelaide Footy Club, but a lot of uh, ill feeling for me leaving a footy club that I thought I was going to play forever for. I wanted to play 400 plus games. Peter Carey was a 400 game player. I wanted to match, emulate, and hopefully surpass what Super had been able to do. I was captain of Glenelg. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to desert them. We played in a losing grand final. I wanted to stay and rectify that. I had so many friends there. So it was a really challenging time uh, for all of us. For all of us in that first year when you know, 80, there was 80 of us thrown together and they eventually got it down to 52. Um, you know, the challenges had only really just begun. What's up, guys? I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's quarter time here on A5Q, and that means going back to last week's episode where I had the opportunity to sit down and have a chat with the one and only Jason Ackermanis. Yes, that's right, the Acker, the three-time premiership player and Brownlow medalist in 2001. Uh, things got very heated towards the end. Acker says what he thinks. He doesn't hold back, and he has no filter. So that is definitely one you've got to check out. Here's a little snippet. Nah, it's and it, and it burns in my soul. It's probably going to be less, but I just, I just can't stand. What I can't stand is now. You know what they do? They, uh, they do, they do it the right way. I'm not saying they learn anything from when I did it, but they certainly f-ed it up. Didn't give me a chance to have a last game. Didn't give me a chance to say goodbye to the fans. Just left me hanging. All because of a few selfish f-ed in in the Bulldogs who just f-ed couldn't handle it. Had a silk it. Yeah, like it. There's not one party ever speaks well of those guys for doing that. Like, when you give your life to the game, you deserve just a hair bit more. It wasn't even much. I didn't even ask him too much. Just, just to clap around or, or just to say thanks so much, Aka. And in the end, I never had that. Never had a chance to say goodbye or anything like that. It's like, it, it didn't have to be that way. And so it's, it's a shame. It happened. Um, you know, I walk away and I was, I would have had it. I carried it with me for a long time, I've got to tell you. I'm over it now, but you know, now that you mentioned it, it does it still burn bright that if you think that sounded good, well, the full episode is even better, so you definitely got to go back and listen to it. And just FYI, the full episode is not, the, the profanity is not censored out, so uh, just be aware of that. Anyway, let's get back to Chris McDermott. Because you're actually listed as the very first Adelaide Crows player. You sit at number one. Yeah. How, how does it come about when you're signed with the club for that first squad in 1991? Like, how did that occur and what are your memories of that first ever pre-season under Graham Corns? Yeah, well, you know, I was pretty well you know, approached by you know Bob Hammond, Neil Curley, um, Bill Sanders, the, the people in control of the footy club. Um, and so once that had been established uh, and my mind was made up and it was re- a reality, the decision to go was, was, was an easy one. It was, it was an easy one in the end. Um, the opportunity to lead a South Australian team into the AFL, into that competition, to play the best of the best, and, and knowing that it was going to happen was a commitment that I could make pretty pretty quickly, pretty easily, um, and, and was happy to do so. The challenge was that, uh, getting through pre-season, then pre-season starts, you've got 80 blokes there all trying to make the final squad of 52, and so to unite that playing group, to keep them on track, to make them understand the challenges that were ahead. Um, oh, the the the, uh, the reality was it was it was it was tough. It was hard. 
Um, but it was fun and it was challenging. So it was as hard as it was, it was great. But again, remembering in those early days, we trained at Footy Park. We ran around Westlake. We had no facilities. The facilities and the multi-million dollar facilities that are there today went there in 1991. There was no weights room. There was one quickly thrown together with a couple of pieces of universal equipment that could hold about 10 players at a time. Wow. So the weight work was really challenging. And, you know, you had to do, the majority of your work you did was on the track, running hard, getting your fitness level up because that was going to be the biggest challenge. It wasn't so much the game style, but the physical challenges that we would face um, in the first year that would be the biggest challenge. And they certainly were, you know, I'll fast track quickly to the first trial game in 1981 against, uh, 1991 against, I think, or maybe there was a second one against the West Coast Eagles, and they just took absolute joy in beating us up and being extremely physical, and that was the approach of most teams that first year was beat them up as much as you can because their bodies won't be resilient, won't be ready for uh, you know, a full season at AFL level. And, you know, it proved to be a bit of a challenge for most players, um, but a lot of fun at the same time. That's an amazing insight. And how did the captaincy come about and, and what does it mean to you to be the first ever Adelaide Crows captain? Because that title is yours and yours forever. Yes, it was a great honour um, and something I cherished. Um, you know, I, there was you know, Tony McGuinness had come over from Victoria and certainly had uh, claims to it as well. I guess at that stage I'd been captain of the state side uh, in SA for the previous, I'm going to say five years, four or five years, maybe 87, I think I was captain at the state level, might have been 86. So, I, you know, I guess I had that. And so I had an association and an understanding with a lot of players that were going to come and play. So um, huge honour, loved it. Um, and, you know, the beauty was, you know, with Tony there, you know, Mark Micken came back and had leadership qualities as well. And the captain Brisbane, you know, there was Andrew Jarman and what he offered. There was so many older players that had come back that had that sort of stuff that I could lean on. You know, Daryl Hart was there as well. So um, had plenty of other players around. Captaincy meant a lot to me. To be able to speak to the players at the end of the race before we walked onto the ground for the first time is a memory that I'll never forget, just to stop the players and reflect on what we'd done for the previous four or five months of pre-season, what laid ahead for us when we walked onto the ground to play Hawthorne in that first game. And also the responsibility that we had as that first team to represent the club in a way that would be remembered because we knew and understood that in 30 years' time we'd be having this conversation that, you know, they'd be talking about what was it like in day one, what sort of team represented, what sort of style did they play, um, do we respect them, did they respect the jumper that they pulled on and hopefully when people reflect back and look at that club, um, that's exactly the way they look at us, that we flew the flag, we played hard, we played tough, we respected the club and, and we built a culture um, that they're proud of 30 years later. And here I am 30 years later asking you about that first game 91 against Hawthorne at Football Park, 86-point win against 
a very, very powerful Hawthorne team with Jason Dunstall, John Platten, Gary Ayres, Chris Langford, Darren Jarman, of course. list goes on. They, mm. they just won the preseason competition and they ended up winning the premiership. How did you guys not just beat Hawthorne, but absolutely obliterate them by nearly 100 points? A credit to the public of South Australia. They've given the Crows full support. And here they go to open the season, to open their AFL career. The Crows have really done everything right tonight. I, I haven't found a cheat in the side as the siren goes. Lidner will want to finish it off. He shoots towards goal. Oh, he finishes it off all right. A marvellous victory for the Adelaide Crows. Bruce Lidner finishes the night with four goals. And an 86-point win to the Adelaide Crows in their AFL home and away debut. It's one of those days where it was almost meant to be. We had this feeling of invincibility as we went out in the ground. Sometimes in a football change room, you just get a feeling. And, um, you know, we got one a few years later that I may talk about in a, in, a, in a moment, but we just had this really good feeling. The, the crowd were engaged. The, the, the city was alight. It had been an incredible week. And from really early on in the game, we we just knew we just knew we were up to the speed. Uh, you know, Hawthorne coming off a premiership were maybe just caught a little bit, maybe blindsided a little bit. And it was just one of those nights where everything clicked. Everybody played well. Um, it, it was magical. It was a beautiful night. It was calm. It was still. It was warm. Um, and apart from getting knocked out in the last quarter, um, it was a magical night. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. You, um, you were knocked out, of course, by Dermot Burden. Do you do you remember that at all? And and sort of occurred after that because that goes down in Adelaide Crows folklore, really. Being assisted to the interchange bench. McDermott, oh, down he goes. Oh, there'll be a fight on here. Negri's in quickly. McDermott's hurt. That was terrible stuff there by the two Hawthorne players. And McDermott has not moved. I think he's going to report Burton. So Hayden Kennedy is doing exactly the same. I think he's conscious, which is... uh good news but he's as tough as nails yeah thanks for that uh, <laughs> well it was Dermot and uh, Paul Deere so Paul Deere who was 110 kilos came one side Dermot the other side me at 85 kilos in the middle there was only going to be one loser from that one I remember nothing it was, was one of the well I've been knocked out a few times uh, in my career but I was sort of out for 15 minutes I reckon I've seen the video of it many times and it's sort of as I'm getting taken off on the stretcher it looks like I'm conscious but I can tell you I wasn't came to in the change rooms a little bit later um, look pretty collision in those days pretty collision I had no problem with it at all um, Neil Curley had a real problem with it and um, certainly let uh, the Hawthorne footy club know but look I spoke to Dermot you know the day after um, and didn't throw him under the bus couldn't remember it anyway, so I wasn't going to, you know, there was a code of ethics back there that you were you abided by, and so you know, I threw my hands up and said, look, I don't remember a thing. The video told the story, Dermot got six, he got two, 
uh, and the rest was history. Um, but we've laughed about it at uh, lunches, footy meetings, and when we bump into each other in the media for the next 20-odd years. So uh, yeah, one of those things. You know, Had it happened today, it would have been viewed a little bit differently. Um, but you know, six matches back in 1991 is a lot of matches to get. That just didn't happen very often. Um, very rare. But really rare, really rare. One of those things. And um, you know, I played the next day, next week. We played Carlton. Um, you know, six, seven days later at, uh, at at Footy Park, and you know, after a couple of days, I was I was good to go and was pretty happy to play. And you know, it was an opportunity to captain a team against Stephen Kernahan, who had played so much. Um, childhood footy with, so I wasn't going to miss that game for anything. Um, and again, different times, different laws, and different results. Referee says, fellas, take a break, it's half time. Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport, and hopefully, you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. So what about that 1991 season as a whole? I mean... Even back then in, in 91, 10 wins, 12 losses, that's that's a very good first outing. You finished ninth. What was your take on that first season at the Adelaide Crows? Yeah, it was, a, it was a really good year. We had some bad losses. I mean, we had some great and memorable wins, some horrendous losses. I mean, we got smashed by Essendon at Windy Hill. St. We Kilda as well. St. Kilda uh, at, uh, at Moorabbin. So we found it really tough to win on... Uh, home grounds in the VFL. They were massive challenges there. But, you know, all part of the learning curve. You know, we travelled on the day of the game. So we would get up at 6 o'clock, you know, or half past 5 in the morning for some blokes, get to the airport, get on the plane, uh, fly to Melbourne, get on a bus, get to the ground, play the game, get back on the bus, get back to the really? airport, fly back home, all in the same day. So, you know, Jeez. now they fly two days before and, and do it a lot differently, but you know, you just you did what you did, and you learned and you learned quickly. Um, but great year, great learning curve, learning curve, some highs, some lows, but you know, just makes you stronger and makes you better the year after. So um, we learned really quickly. We developed our bodies. We knew they would uh, be some challenges there, so our bodies got bigger and stronger. Um, back in those days, um, you might recall, remember or have read that they did something called 100-100. So we did 100-metre sprints. We did 100 of them. You had to do the sprints in 17 seconds. Then you had a 43 seconds to rest and then run back the other way. So they were a popular thing in AFL, VFL circles. We did 120 of them because Graham said, well, they're all doing 100 of them, so do 120 of them. So, you got to do better, yeah. You know, just challenges to put your body through to know that you are as fit, if not fitter, than the Victorian teams, as strong, if not stronger, than the Victorian teams. So you got your, your bodies physically ready, and then it was just developing your game style and your player quality to be in a position to challenge for 
what we hope would be finals and an ultimate premiership in the not too distant future. But 91 was a big year in that development of players. You know, Ben Hart comes to the footy club. Sean Wren evolves in the not too distant future in 92. Mark Rusciuto, Simon Goodwin, Tyson Edwards, uh, and ultimately Tony Modra as well. So after 91, the world started to change significantly for that Adelaide footy club. And 1992 was your best season in the AFL. You won All-Australian Honours and Adelaide's best and fairest. You averaged like 32 possessions or something like that. You were really, you were one of the best players in the competition that year. What allowed you to be at the absolute top of your game in an AFL aspect? Was it hard work, diet, changing your role? Well, joys of being captain. You say, give the ball to me or you won't play next week. <laughs> so, uh, uh, look, you know, 92 was, was a good year. Uh, certainly wasn't diet. You know, these are, these are pre really pre that age so you know your food intake you know apart from maybe having a bowl of pasta on the friday night because that's what you always did um but nah diet wasn't a huge part of it train hard now i was in the the train hard play hard era uh, and that was the era of the 80s and it wasn't an era that coach uh then graham corns liked but um you know that again they were different times and why I don't apologise for those times. We played hard on the field and we enjoyed ourselves off the field. So it was still a time where once the game was finished, you had a beer and you enjoyed going out and you enjoyed off field as much as you did on field. And you came back to train Sunday morning and push through any um, uncomfortable feelings you might have had from the <laughs> night before. Um, but, you know, it was, it was that sort of time and... Um, you know, I, I, Graham and I clashed quite often about that part of it. Um, but just I saw it as important part of culture development. Um, and he thought I pushed it beyond the levels of what was acceptable. Um, and that's a debate we continue to have and will continue to have. But I just thought I was doing what was right um, for the footy club. Um, but, you know, they were different times, but um, fun times. And, you know, 92 was a personally a good year, but in the end it was a disappointing year for the, 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 the team. We just had too many lows again, had too many poor losses, just lost our way. And the end of 92, we just made a commitment that... Um, we would be bigger, better, faster, stronger and wouldn't let those opportunities slip again. And 93 was a much better year, a great year for the footy club. But ultimately, you know, come a prelim final, you know, we're six goals up at half time. We lost a game that we should never, ever, ever have lost. And that one is um, something I will, as they say, take to the grave because that was a massive disappointment. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to get into that. So 1993, as you mentioned, was a fantastic year for the club. You had five players in the All-Australian squad. It's best remembered for Tony Modra, 129 goals. You made the finals for the first time. You had that game against Collingwood to get you into the finals, and then you, you won your first final against Hawthorne, and then you had the preliminary final against Essendon, 42 points up at half time. What happened? And next week we'll be playing Carlton. It's been one of the most remarkable games in the long history of this great game, to be seven goals behind at half-time. That's it. 
it's, it's a it's a it's a really good question. Um, well, uh, we knew, you know, well, you know, you, we knew at half time that Essendon would come. Uh, we knew that you know you had ten minutes of football really in those first ten minutes of the third quarter to resist, repel, defend, score, all those things, and we just weren't capable. We let them seize momentum and. We couldn't stop them. We couldn't stop them from the coach's box. We couldn't stop them on field. And they just kept persisting and pushing and pushing. And we made some mistakes. Uh, we missed easy opportunities in front of goal that we should have kicked. We could have halted momentum ourselves and we couldn't do it. And ultimately, it was a massive lesson learned. But, you know, that, they, they were too good. It was a great victory by them and a Poor result by us, and um, uh, yeah. what do you do? You, you you can't change it, and it was just a loss. That you know, did we have to have it? No, but you know, what, what do you do? In hindsight, is a great thing, but at the time we had, you know, we had great coaching staff there that couldn't stop it. We had great playing staff there that couldn't stop it. Um, so we only have ourselves to blame. There is nobody else to blame, but the the players on the field and we accepted full responsibility for it. Yeah, because I've had Dustin Fletcher on the show and he spoke about it from the winning point of view. I've had, yep. as I said, Graham Corns, he spoke about it from the coach's point of view and, and now I've got you as a as a losing player point of view. Um, the incident at halftime that gets spoken about with the farting incident, um, <laughs> I, I asked Graham Corns and he said he didn't hear it nor did he smell it. Is that, yeah. is that story true? The story's true. Um, did it cost us anything? Oh, no. You, 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 you're better than that. But how do, you, how do you know what's going on inside 21 players' heads? No. No. It, 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 was, it was there. It, it happened. So there's no denying it. I would like to think we're better than that as players. We are able to get ourselves back on track, focus. And I know personally... And for players I've spoken to, no, no. Was it Mark Bickley? Yes. I mean, obviously, you can tell by the way you're talking, it's something you look back on and think what could have been. Do, do you ever think, what could I have done as a captain to try and stop that Essendon comeback? Oh, absolutely. Of course, of, of course you do. You do everything at, at the, the time within, in, within your power to uh, change the course of the game. We, you know, but... Um, ultimately, it, it, it didn't happen. So, sure, as captain, you take absolutely the majority of the uh, responsibility for it. As Graham Cornswood, as coaches, as you do as, as leaders of, of that team, you do everything you think within your power. Um, so, yes, and, you know, crikey, it's now nearly 30, 30 years later, um, that game. Um, so, yes, yes, you do. Um, and you know, ultimately, it didn't work. So, um, and, and you've got to be able to move on. I guess you know. Yes, you dissect the loss. Yes, you accept responsibility. Yes, '94 is another year, and you try and do everything you can to make amends for it the following year. Ironically, '94 is probably more of a disappointment because we're going so well, and the wheels fell off the entire footy club in, in 1994, and it resulted in in massive change and. Irreparable damage, and you know, took 
change again to, to fix it. But, um, you know, footy clubs are funny things. And, you know, I think everybody that's been involved in the game will say exactly the same. That, um, you know, there were just pivotal moments in footy clubs that change the club and the culture and lives forever. And, you know, as bad as the end of 93 was, um, it wasn't, you know, 94 was that moment that changed lives forever and, um, you know, changed that footy club forever. Just one more on the 93 prelim. Yep. Do you, sure. do, do you ever think to yourself, and I asked Graham Corns this from a coach's perspective, but do you ever look at that game and think, had we had won and gotten into the grand final and, and had you had beaten Carlton, the name Chris McDermott, Premiership captain in a club's third year in existence. Do you ever think what that would have done for you in the Australian rules football spectrum? No, I I I think about the loss and what could you know? Gee, it would have been good to play in the grand final because I reckon we could have we could have won it. So I understand that part of it, but no, nah, not not. There's nothing nothing personal about it at all. Not at all. I have no. Um, no, that, that's not part of my psyche. It's not part of what I stand for. It's not part of who I am. It's not part of what I think. Um, so the opportunity to play in the grand final, yes, uh, but no more so than Glenelg in 81, Glenelg in 82, 87, 88 and 90. No more. And the responsibility you had then is exactly the same. Yeah, very well answered. So you, you mentioned 94 and it was a very disappointing season for the club. You missed the finals and Graham Corns uh, is moved on. What was yep. your view of the end of 94 and Cornsy's exit from the club? Oh, well, Graham and I had um, some real uh, personal issues during the year as well. So uh, we clashed. So our relationship as captain and coach certainly had disintegrated during the latter part of 94, and so I feel some responsibility for his departure, um, and that breakdown is something we've spoken about, you know, we, and we didn't speak about it for, for, for quite a few years, but something we've certainly mended uh, in, in the last couple of years. Um, so I, I feel responsible for it. Uh, I certainly didn't go into bat for him. Um, at the end of 1994 when asked. Uh, now, I wasn't a lone wolf there and there were other players who certainly were um, questioned and asked about their thoughts on where the club and the direction the club should go. I was a great um, support and advocate for Michael Taylor at that stage and he'd been a great understudy and uh, assistant coach to Graham uh, for a number of years and thought that the club needed to morph into him and let him take the reins and that would be a subtle change not a massive change um the club had a different opinion uh, and i'm not quite sure about other players what their opinions were about what they thought but um you know the move then went from <clears throat> graham to robert shaw and i guess the next couple of years speak for themselves yeah, okay, so the Robert Shaw era is really interesting for Adelaide. So, 95, he comes in, Tony McGuinness becomes the captain, and, and that new yep. new era starts. 
and I, I've had Tyson Edwards on the show as well, and he he said at the time the club felt they needed a Victorian influence within the club, and it seems to me personally, as an outsider yep. looking in, that he was a coach who didn't mesh at all with the players. It just seems like there was a, a big a distance between the coaches and the player. What was your take on Robert Shaw as a coach and what was your relationship like with him in 95, 96? Um, yeah, uh, so, so, so it's a very good question. Um, and I pause only because I don't <clears throat> like to speak ill of anybody. I don't think it does anybody any good, but we, we didn't have a good... All I'll say is we didn't have a good relationship, uh, and that's pretty well from the moment that he arrived until the moment he left. Um, so there, there was no relationship a- at all to speak of. And while I don't think I backdoored him or did anything to have him removed from the place, I just didn't like his style. Uh, appreciate his style, uh, and it, he was never comfortable at, at, at that footy club at all with, with with anybody. So we didn't have a relationship. There was no respect either way, um, and I did the best I could in those circumstances. But he certainly, as a coach, um, didn't bring the best out of me as a player either. So um, no, not a good time for for either of us. I wouldn't have thought. And you know, there was a time during. That 1995 season, where the the club, I think, had some doubts about his ability to continue as a coach. Certainly, in early 1996, there was discussions about him not continuing, but the club chose to persist with him until the end of '96. And um, I guess that's a, that's a different story. But uh, no, we didn't have a good relationship at all. Did he make the decision to to give McGuinness the captaincy, or was that your call to step down? No, it wasn't my call at all. No, that was his decision. So do you look at those four, oh, sorry, three years, 94, 95, 96, and feel disappointment that the group didn't achieve more than the, what they probably could have? Because you still had yourself, Tony McGuinness, Andrew Jarman, Greg Anderson, Tony Modra, Wiedemann, Sean Wren, Mark Rusciuto. You finished 11th, 11th, and 12th. Do you think you could have achieved a lot more than that? Oh, absolutely. No, horrend- horrendous years. Horrible years. Dreadfully wasted. I mean, you, you mentioned all those players, but you know you've got so you know Ben Hart at the footy club, you know, all Australian club record holder. Simon Goodwin is there. Tyson Edwards is there. You spoke about Rashudo being there. You got moderate full forward. You got Wren in the ruck. You got David Pittman. You had this core of superstar players that have gone on and been greats of the Adelaide Footy Club, greats of the AFL, Premiership players. So it was. It was all there, um, and to not be able to capitalise on it, yeah, it's, it's a dis- disappointment. Great for those players that they were able to do so. I feel great for them uh, for, for 97 and 98 and what they were able to do. Was there a slight disappointment not to be part of it? Yes, of course. As I've spoken to you know Jar and Tony McGuinness about the disappointment of that, but, you know, you get to learn and understand that that's life. And Malcolm Plyatt, how, how could you possibly not understand what he did, respect what he did, and congratulate him for what he did? Because he did what others couldn't do and what we weren't capable of doing. Um, you know, the disappointment is more 
84, I think, when we had, we were all still there and that we just let it fall apart. So, hmm, interesting. The end of 96 is when Shaw is moved on and Malcolm Blight comes in. And that's now a famous story because he instantly makes a statement by moving Yuan, McGuinness, Jarman and Greg Anderson now, yep. you've you got to think of that in today's equivalent, right? So that's like Matthew Nix coming in at the start of last year and getting rid of Tex Walker, Rory Sloan, Daniel Talia, and Tom Lynch. That's like today's equivalent. Was it just as yep. simple as Malcolm Blight tapping you on the shoulder and saying, Chris, your services are no longer required? Well, no, Malcolm didn't do it. So Malcolm got the club. So the club did it. So they got us. All of us went to stories quite famous sort of now that called us all all of us called down to the football club and uh, one by one you know we had a four o'clock appointment a 4.15 a 4.30 and a 4.45 and one by one we went in and came out and they just sort of did us uh, I think it was Bill Sanders I can't even remember who was there John Reed, I think Bill and John might have been there in Bill's office at the Adelaide Footy Club at Westlake called us in one by one no longer required. Thanks. See you later. So Malcolm didn't have anything to do with that part of it. He might have been the brains behind it and get, get it done. But didn't, and quite understandably, he didn't want to have to deal with negativity as soon as he came in and with players who weren't going to be there while he was coaching. So just got others to do it. And he wanted to go in with the players he was going to coach and no, I guess, animosity or what from other players that he wasn't going to coach. So can understand it quite, you know, in coaching a couple of years later, you know, did something quite similar. Didn't like it, but could understand it. So when it happened at the time, was there, yep. did, were you fully like understanding of it or did, was there part of you that thought, I don't believe this is the right decision? Oh, no, I was, I was cranky. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I wanted to play on and thought I still had um, some life, football life left in me. Now, you know, look back at 1996, and I didn't have a horrible year. I played at Glenelg, and so was in and out. Played largely off the bench in the games that I played at, at the Adelaide Footy Club. So, you know, if you say, well, your year was poor, you don't deserve to play, um, you know, my form didn't suggest I had any more football in me. My head said I did, but certainly my form said I didn't. You you briefly mentioned earlier, but what was your emotion like when the Crows won the Premiership in both 97 and 98? Was it pride to see your old club get the ultimate glory? Was there a little bit of envy? Did you think you should have been a part of it? They've made the most of them to really bury St Kilda in this last final term of 1997. So there's nothing left now but to celebrate.
They've been to Perth, to Melbourne, to Sydney, to Melbourne, and they've come back. They are a super football team. No question. It's endorsed its fate today. Yeah, well, no, I probably can't explain it. Um, it. It was a really unique one, and I know, you know, the four blokes that you mentioned all had similar feelings. Um, so, you know, it was hard to have that pride because there was still a bit of disappointment and, you know, no doubt a bit of anger at not being there. I'm coaching North Adelaide. We're in the finals, so I, know, I didn't even I didn't didn't watch the game. Um, you didn't watch the game? No, I you know um, I've seen bits and pieces of it, but um, no, I didn't didn't watch it. Um, so yeah, I was really mixed emotions. And again, at that stage, I didn't feel part of the footy club. It was a you know again times are different. Twenty five years ago. Um, so, no, there wasn't really that. I was happy that for individually for the players. You know, I still had a good relationship with quite a lot of the players, a good friendship with a lot of them. Um, yeah, my feelings for the club at that stage were a little strained. They got repaired over the next few years and a few years later. But at that stage, they were still a little bit strained. When you say you didn't watch the game, was that was it too painful to watch it or was it... You- yeah, for I, want of a better think, word, lost the interest, I guess. No, I still had the interest. I think it was probably, the, yeah, you're probably right, that it would have been painful to watch and challenging and difficult to watch. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's a range of emotions, most of them insular ones and sort of selfish ones uh, that are probably hard to explain. And I know a lot of people were certainly inside my family and externally were challenged by my feelings towards the club in those days and that, that's cool and I understand that you, you deal with your own emotions and you ultimately get over them and move on um, you had a right to feel that way though I feel because you, you're the fa- yeah. you're, you're, you, you, when people think of Camry Crows they think of you. you you are forever scripted in Adelaide history as the inaugural captain you know you're a big figure of the club and I, I can understand why you'd feel like that yeah but again you know, always understand that the club is bigger than the individual and that was you know something that I just had to grasp and it's sometimes it's easy to say and when you're faced with living it um, it's sometimes challenging to live but it is without doubt um, as true today as it was back in those days that uh, you know the club is bigger and you've got to just swallow it and move on and not let it um, obsess your, you know, occupy your every living thought. You've got to move on and got to move past. You know, ultimately, I've been able to do that. But, um, yeah, I struggled with that in 96, uh, 97, that's for sure. You're a very, very selfless individual. Look, guys, th- quick three-quarter time break here on A5Q. I just want to let you all know that in the next couple of weeks... I've got Kevin Lish, who is coming on the show, who is an NBL legend, uh, a 2010 championship player and two-time MVP. I sat down and had a chat with him about his career and his, and his life. Uh, here's a little snippet to get you in the mood. 
I think there were a lot of emotions because I knew halfway through that season that I was going to have to essentially medically retire. That was going to be my last game. You, you know, we had some idea it was going to be Bogu's last game. You know, Damian Martin retired from the other end. I think at the end of the day, we had four guys, four or five guys who were international guys who had to get back home. You know, all the boarders were starting to do, do their thing. Not many people knew about this novel thing. So, you know, I think we, we felt, you know, pretty at peace with, with um, our decision when, you know, it was called off. But then after that, um, to be honest, I was like, I don't even remember where I was when, I think it was, uh, yeah, when the NBL announced that Perth was going to win. And I really didn't feel anything because at the end of the day, I think we felt at peace that we were taking care of, especially our international guys. Kevin Leash is a lovely guy, so you'll definitely enjoy that episode. But for right now, let's get back to Bone. You ended up returning to the SNFL, as we said, and, and you coached North Adelaide for three years. But you were a player coach for a bit as well. How do you view those years as a coach and how did it come to an end in 2000? I love, loved my first couple of years at North Adelaide and loved loved playing and coaching because you know it LA owed me to scratch an itch because I thought I you know I still had time to play and wanted to play um, and I enjoyed the coaching bit um, you know 97 at North was a good fun year I loved the footy club they were really warm, really welcoming. I love the people. Their administration were great. The players were, were really good. And we had a team that, um, that you know, really, I really enjoyed being part of. I loved it. Um, and unfortunately, I just, you know, I, you know, I don't, I, I didn't recapture that energy and excitement from 97 into 98. And 99 and 2000, I was there four years, you know, just, it, it, it's sour. Love 97, we'll always love it, we'll always um, enjoy it. You know, to be part of Chris Laddams, who went on to play for Essendon, and Lucas Herbert, who came from Glenelg and played there at North Adelaide, and, and some of the players there um, really in, in, enjoyed that time. Um, and I just wasn't able to maintain it again my responsibility I just couldn't do it then lost a bit of interest and you can't you know if you're going to coach you've got to be fully committed and I just I think what I lacked was somebody around me to be able to you know kick me in the backside and say oh you're doing this wrong or you need to do this or you need to start continue to play and um, you know I just didn't have that resource alongside me to clip me in the gear and thought I knew everything and I think as a coach you never know everything. Was there ever an intention of you to coach again after 2000 at any level? No, no, no not at all. I, I, I don't. There was Dennis Pagan uh, spoke to me at some stage, you know, I can't remember what year it was about coming over to Melbourne and being an assistant under him at North Melbourne. Wow. Um, and th- that never obviously eventuated and um, no, I lost interest 
you know, I met a girl in two, in, in late 1998 um, that I ended up marrying. And so, you know, priorities yeah, not necessarily change, but they shift. Uh, and you can't have shifting priorities in, in the football world, and certainly not in those days. And, you know, that shift, I don't know. You know, I don't blame her for it. That's my, but I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do, I couldn't do both. I found coaching and my personal life. I, I couldn't do both successfully. Maybe I didn't want to do both successfully, um, so I morphed out of coaching, went into commentary, and my private life. And so I, I could do those, but I certainly couldn't coach well and do what else I wanted to do. And I, I know family always does come first, but have you ever thought what could have been had you taken that opportunity with Dennis Pagan? No, no, I've never looked. I've never, I've never, no, I, I've, no, I've never done that. Um, I've been really happy with the majority of decisions I've made in my footy career. Um, so I, I'm not one that looks back and you know what if. What if we'd won? What if we'd lost? Different story. But decisions I've made, no, I, d- I don't think so. Certainly that one about going to Melbourne, coaching, not one I've regretted. I've never once regretted that decision to put my personal life ahead of football. Never regretted one minute of that. No, definitely fair enough. Chris, just as we are about to close up now, I just want to quickly talk about your career for South Australia. You obviously represented yep. SA on multiple occasions. Back then, very, very important to put that jumper on and represent your state. What was it like to put that South Australian jumper on and, and actually represent the state? Oh, obviously, well, it's not the greatest memory I have, but it runs a really close second. I don't think anything um, surpasses your premiership moment. And, um, but you know, my first game was in uh, over in WA at Subiaco. Malcolm Blight's last game, he kicks um, you know six goals, five, uh, and just you know to be able to play a game of footy with him. You know, Stephen Kernahan in the same game, kicked, I think he kicked six or seven goals straight. He had a temperature of 104 the morning of the game and wasn't going to play, and then comes out and does that. Um, you know, to be part of that. Team and I, I played off the bench uh, and, and got a run and you know, played minimal minutes, but to be part of it was huge. To, to go on and be part of that great era in state footy and play with some of the greats, you know, players who came back from Melbourne, you know, to play with McIntosh, with Jarman, um, to be, you know, champions of Australia, to beat the Vicks in 86, to beat them in 87, to beat them on the MCG in 1993, after the 63 boys had done it 30 years later, to be part of that era, um, just magnificent, just incredible. You know, Max Bashir, Lee Wicker, adored it. John Halbert and Neil Curley were all part of it. And the, the culture was something that I will never forget. And there's as fond a memory today as I've, as I've got into it. I just loved pulling on that state jumper and playing in front of 50,000 at, at Footy Park and the State United. Everybody got together for that one week and then went back to disliking each other the, the day after. But just a great time to be a, a South Australian footballer. Awesome. I've got, I've got four last questions and I always ask these cool. these questions in one sentence to my guests. 
Um, yep. So in your entire career in any any league, the AFL, SANFL, any club, who's the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? Who's the best coach you ever played under and why? And I'll, I'll add this one in for you. Who's the best player you ever coached and why? Best one I ever played with? Look, it's, it's hard. You know, the one I played the most with was, was Chernihan. You know, we played at nine. We played right through to our last game at 30 or whatever, you know, state games to see, you know, he's the, no one's captain more. AFL games than him to see what he did, uh, you know, and I probably ultimately don't say him, but probably I'm too close to him. So he's like a brother, and you know I've seen so so much of him, and I always ignore him. But in reflection, it would be him. Um, but you know, to to play with Modra, you know that that '93 season with Mods and where better friends today than we've ever been you know, and ever were you know, during our footy times together. I spent so much of my time when I was captaining the Crows sort of trying to keep him in line because he was just this free spirit, but he was just incredible. It was an incredible time to play footy 1993 and, and be with Mods. No, 93, that, in that particular year, Modra was just as good as Dunstall, Lockett, Ablett. No, he, he, was was... he was better. He was better for the. If you you can understand better, as in maybe not as a player, but some of the things he did were better, more freakish, more incredible. Athletic. Maybe yeah. they kicked more goals, but his off field, the on field, the, the you know they talk about it being Bradman esque, and Graham Corns has used that statement many times. But but it was we would go to. I remember going to, Park, uh, to Victoria Park to play Collingwood and there were hundreds and hundreds of people waiting for our bus. Um, you know, male, female, young, old, close, Collingwood supporters waiting for our bus and 20 players would get off and they would boo and one player would get off and they would surround him, worship him, hug him, kiss him, yeah, grab wow. him. It was mods. It was the infatuation uh, for him was just incredible. He speaks about a day uh, in the first game of 1994. It is when he kicks 11 against Carlton at Footy Park. And I don't speak to him um, during the game. I'm filthy with him because he misses training on the Thursday night because he goes out for lunch and, you know, just really? coming in yeah, and ha- has a day out and doesn't turn up for training. And then kicks 11. And so I don't speak to him. And he said... It wasn't until he kicked his sixth goal that I come up and you know give him a pat on the backside and remotely forgive him, and then he kicked another five after and kicked eleven. Uh, you know, it was again different time, different place, but you know he just he was just an he was an incredible player, an incredible player. Who knows what he would have been like had he been playing today under the disciplines and the rules that you have to abide by. But he was a free spirit. And um, but magic. So, best player ever played with Kernahan. Modra runs pretty close to it for that one year. For that one year of just incredible stuff that he he did. And for an opposition player, I adored Robert Harvey. Robert Harvey was just a freak. Um, he he ran. He jogged fast. I remember having play, playing on him one day, and he had thirty six. He had eighteen and eighteen on me one day. 
uh, at Moorabbin, and he, I just remember running alongside of him, and he just he jogged fast. It was just a real wake up call if you can get one when you're 30 years of age or nearing near enough to 30. So Kernahan and Roger to play with, Robert Harvey to play against. I thought Corns without a doubt. You know, I, I played under him for 10 years, but had so much success at Clonell, at the Crows at state level, highs and lows with him and the fact that we can speak to each other, talk to each other. And I was in hospital recently um, for a period of, of time and it, I was in there over Christmas. And, you know, it's 10 o'clock Christmas day, the door knocks and I'm not in the best frame of mind or state and it's Graham Corns. And he comes in and he sits with me for three three hours, I think, and it was only because his wife was ringing to get home because people were coming over for Christmas lunch, including his sons, and he had to get home that he actually left. So, you know, only Graham would, would do that, would sacrifice his day to come and see someone. So, um, so I have enormous love, admiration, respect for him, as I always did as a coach, but we, we argued as well. So certainly the coach, Graham, by, by daylight. And the last but not least, the player that I was able to coach, um, crikey, without, without, well, it's not hard because I had this great love for Chris Laddams as a, as a bloke, as a human. I love his family. I love him. And, you know, my first re- recollection of Chris was he was a 15-year-old, at North Adelaide, riding the exercise bike in the change rooms whilst we're doing weights and to have a relationship with this kid, to play him as a 16-year-old, to see him go and play for Essendon, to see him play for the Crows. And he didn't fulfil his absolute potential. He did become a superstar at that level, but he's a beautiful bloke and I see him now and I have a great relationship with so. Um, I think he does more for me than than any player that I've coached. And, you know, I had a few that came through, but he's a special one and a special kid and one that I'll always think of and remember fondly. Chris McDermott, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. I really appreciate your time. You are an icon of South Australian football and an icon of the Adelaide Football Club. Thank you so much for coming on today. It just means I'm old, young fella, but it's been a pleasure. No? It's been very nice. You've been very kind. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.